All right, open up to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. And we'll read our passage again all the way through. Joshua 14. This is uh, the section uh, concerning land allotments and inheritances. And this is the part that begins it all. And it's uh, Caleb's inheritance. And once again, just like I maybe said last week, I've just really been impressed with the true nature of of this spiritual warrior that we see here in the person of Caleb. Let's read this passage. And then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which Yahweh spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed Yahweh, my God, fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed Yahweh, my God, fully. So now, behold, Yahweh has let me live just as he spoke. These 40 years from the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. So now, behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. So as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. So now, give me this Hill country, about which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps Yahweh will be with me, and I will dispossess them as Yahweh has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron, and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he fully followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Akiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land was quiet from war. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you once again that we get to turn to this passage. We might not often turn to this page, so I pray that as our eyes Look upon your word in this portion of your word today that you would do an incredible work of humbling your believers and as a result, filling us with joy and eagerness and boldness in you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I started out by saying that I'm going to kind of cut the message in two. So we're going to kind of continue on from where we were last week, but but I, I feel like I just need to once again kind of kind of set this up a little bit. Why, once again, why, all of you ladies are asking, why do we need to go through a battle story again, twice, in fact, two times? Why do we need to do this? Well, like I said last week, I actually have an urgency. And as I've been preaching through Joshua, I've had this growing urgency inside of me to communicate to you the true spiritual conflict that you are in and, and all humanity is in. But, but, but especially you, if you are believers, you are in a true spiritual conflict. And these conflict passages 
have meaning to you. They, they illustrate something. They have a little bit of an analogy that you can apply to your life. Now, I wouldn't say that's the meaning that that the author of Joshua intended when he wrote Joshua. He wasn't saying, man, I can't wait until year 2023 when a bunch of high schoolers gather in a room on White Lane and they can talk about the analogy equivalence to spiritual warfare. No, he's actually talking about real blood and guts, real war and God's real faithful promises. But we know as believers, there is a true spiritual war that we fight. And, and we see the way we should fight sometimes uh, um, illustrated in the way true men of God fought battles even in the Old Testament. So that's kind of my idea here. There is a lot to learn from this uh, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. And that is how to be a true, a true spiritual warrior. Uh, uh, the nature of a true spiritual warrior. That's my urgency. It is, it is in a sense, it is in a sense describing what my ministry is, my ministry as a, as a minister of the gospel is to do battle. And, in, and it's to do battle in your minds and in your hearts. This is what Paul illustrates in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, he says this, uh, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare this is a minister of the gospel are not of the flesh not a sword not a spear but they're divinely powerful for tearing down of strongholds as we war as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obedience to christ and ready to punish all disobedience, whether your obedience, uh, whenever your obedience is fulfilled. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, I'm engaged in a bit of a battle too. And it's to take minds and hearts captive to obedience to Christ. If you are proud this evening, if you are exalting yourself and lifting yourself up before Christ and God, my job as a minister of the gospel is to humble you. To humble you by the reality of your sobering, serious, sin-filled condition. And, and if you are walking in obedience to Christ, I am here to exhort you, to sharpen you, to straighten you, to help you think better about your life and the world you live in. I'm here to take your thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. That, that's kind of me, my spiritual battle as a, as a minister of the gospel, but there's also... It's also an illustration that we see here of a, of a primary, primary spiritual battle that you face as well. And, and like I said last week, the primary arena of spiritual warfare for you isn't in casting demons out of your closet or out of your cereal or out of your house. But it's making war, making war against the sinful appetites that still are in your life the sin that's trying to easily upset you and, and, and causing you to be strengthened. I, that's what I want for tonight. I want you to be reinvigorated to say, I want to make war against my sin. I want to learn from Caleb because I want to be a warrior, not against other people, but against my own sin that's still inside me, that's weakening me. Romans 13, Romans 13, verse 12. Paul says this to the Roman believers, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. That's a metaphorical expression to say, hey, 
This life is passing very quickly. The night is almost done. The night of this world and this age is almost done. The day, the, the time of Christ is at hand. It is near. It is approaching. Therefore, how do believers think? How do believers live? Romans 13 says this. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Let me ask you a question tonight. Are you in the battle? Are you fighting the battle? Are, are you making war against your lusts? Whatever, whatever version of that there may be. Are you making war against the sin in your life? Maybe it's, it's sin of anger. Maybe it's sin of lust. Maybe it's, it's sin of fearfulness. Maybe it's a sin of being overly pre- preoccupied with other people's opinions more than you're preoccupied on the opinions of Christ. Are you making war against the sin in your life? If you are, this lesson is going to be thrilling to you. Because this, this will show you the true nature of a spiritual warrior. So let's, let's just dig into it. Let's just dig into it. The true nature of a spiritual warrior... Now, one more thing I should say before we, we go into it and just kind of review our points from last week. Ladies, stick with me. There's also a romantic surprise in our message for tonight. I mean, I think romance is warfare, but there's actually romance in this story. So, um, Sellers of Catan, baby. All right, so uh, let's review a few. Let's review our two points that we were doing last week. Uh, remember, point number one was we need to learn from Caleb's energy. We need to learn from Caleb's energy. And I, and I pointed out his boldness, his eagerness, his readiness for a fight. And remember this, he, he was eager and ready for what kind of battlefield? It wasn't eager and ready for a retirement home at the, the mountain of Hermon, looking out over the great, beautiful Mediterranean Sea. That was not what he was eager for. He was eager for the hardest battlefield, the the very place that caused the spies to tremble. He wanted that spot. He had eagerness. He had eager boldness. Why? Because he believed that it was God's will for the children of Israel to possess this land. And And just like we today have eagerness and boldness and confidence when we are convinced that we are walking in God's will, so he had eagerness and boldness and joy, right? Because we know if this is God's will for my life, then this also will have God's resources to to accomplish his will, right? Remember remember when we talked about all these illustrations, right? It's God's will for your life that you're sanctified. That you grow in spiritual maturity and you grow in spiritual purity. And that brings you great joy because you know God will bring you resources to accomplish that. It's God's, it's God's will in your life that you grow up through his word. Every time you open your Bibles, it is God's will for you to grow through his word. So you can have eager joy as you read, knowing that it's God's will that I grow. And you can even pray accordingly, right? Lord, it's your will that I glean great truths from your word so that my sin is weakened and that I love you more. Show me beautiful things from your word, even today. Let me give you one more, one more idea about something you can be eager about. 
James 1 verse 2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at that. For the believer, even when you encounter difficulties, you have all joy because you know that God is working in your life. You can have eagerness. You can even have boldness, even in difficult times, because you can say to yourself, these are difficult times, but this is, uh, this is what God has given to me. You ever play the game of Candyland? It's a great life lesson. I just learned some lessons with my kids the other day. You, you, can't, you can't play the game just, just unless you just accept the fact that you are going to be dependent on the card that you get, right? Matter of fact, if you're only playing the game to say, man, I just only want to win, I only want the good cards, let's remove all the bad cards, all the face cards so that I only can win, that kind of removes the whole point of the game, right? But there's, there's actually joy in the game when you just play the game as the cards come to you. Now, that's a bad illustration, but it was helpful to me. But there is a sense in which when you are a believer, you can have joy even in the hard times because you know that this is the deck that you have been given by your loving Heavenly Father. Why? For what purpose? He says there in James 1, what to, to grow you in your perseverance. And when perseverance is complete... You are complete. You are perfect. You're lacking nothing. You are mature. You can have joy. You can rejoice even in difficult things. Because you know, this isn't just some random deck of cards that's coming my way. This is a, a deck of life that has been orchestrated by God for my good and His glory. So anyway, we, we should learn from Caleb's energy, his eagerness in, in knowing that he is in God's will. But then secondly, I talked about we should learn also from Caleb's fullness. He had, he had full energy to do God's word because of what was inside of him. He, he was full of confidence in God. He, he wholly followed God. He, he was filled, filled with con- conviction that God's promises would be faithful. He was convinced of that. Remember this, that terrible illustration I used last week that took me forever to get to, and you're all wondering why I was talking about it, but that was just to throw you off, because some of you already have heard that illustration. But the idea of a sponge is that it absorbs water, and when it is squeezed, what comes out of it? What is inside of it? The same thing happened with Caleb, right? When you are squeezed, the truth about you comes out. And that's what we saw in Caleb. What came out of Caleb during the difficult times of his life? What came out of Caleb when he was facing a very frightening enemy? Confidence in God. Because he was filled with God. With confidence in God's power and God's strength. So let's let's turn now to our, our third point. If you're... If you're just starting, you can say point one, I suppose. But this will be our third point, the third thing we need to learn from Caleb. We need to learn from Caleb's humility. We need to learn from Caleb's humility. Now, perhaps you don't see it, but let me try to show it to you. I I am convinced Caleb's eagerness, Caleb's fullness... His fullness of God and conviction of God's promises wasn't because he, he wasn't eager. He wasn't full because he had great self-confidence. 
And maybe some people would look at the story of, of Caleb and say, look at this, I've got a great message prepared for you about the, the power of positive thinking. All you have to do is will yourself into great things. All you have to have is, is, is high, a high opinion of yourself. I can do anything, and you're good. And that might be a twisted way to apply the life of Caleb, but I would actually say what, what is truly emphatic in Caleb's life is his humility. And I would even want to argue with you tonight that this is the key to Caleb himself, that he is a humble man. Let's just look at Caleb's uh, humility. I, look at the evidence of his humility. I pointed this out last week, but, but remember all of those, those words about holy following Yahweh. That was his heart. He, was, he had a heart set to fully follow his Lord and his God. What do you have to have to have a, a heart like that? You have to have humility. You have to say, not my will, but yours be done. You have to say, this is not about me, it's about you. And wherever you bring me, wherever you lead me, I will go. I am wholly convinced to following you. Not me, not my comforts, not my interests, but you. That is a humble heart. But then, but then look at verse 10. Look at his, his, the dependency that he demonstrates. The, the indication that he's trusting and relying on God. Verse 10, he says this. So now, behold, Yahweh has let me live, just as he spoke, 45 years from the time that he spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. Notice his language. It's dependent language. Yahweh has let me live. He has continued my life. He has kept me on earth. Do you ever speak that way? God has let me live. Every day is God letting me live. That is a great humble statement from Caleb. And then, then notice how this, how this kind of rolls over into his present. Verse, verse 11, he talks about his present too. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. Notice, God has let me live, and I'm even strong right now as I was then. God is continuing to give me strength. God is continuing to strengthen me, even in an almost a supernatural way. He's an old man, but he's as strong as he was when he was a young man. He sees that his place in life has also come with the resources of God to fulfill his calling in his life. And he is a very humble man for recognizing that. And then just just notice the humility of his eagerness. If we go back over this point again in verse 12, what does he say? Now give me this hill country, which Yahweh has spoken on that day. Notice, if Yahweh has spoken something, then it will be. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how difficult it is, what the challenge is, it will come to pass. I believe it. I believe God's word. But that's not even the great part here. For you heard on that day that the Anakim are there uh, with great fortified cities. Then he says, perhaps Yahweh will be with me and I will dispossess as Yahweh has spoken. Now, that word perhaps is perhaps one of my favorite words. It's not necessarily saying, well, there's, there's a percentage of unlikelihood that this will happen. Well, this is actually an expression of confidence and boldness in the sovereignty of God. 
It's an, it's an expression of hope, but it's mixed with this beautiful humility. It's not Caleb saying, I'm going to speak my victory into existence. It's saying, I'm going to go out in humble, obedient faith, and Yahweh has total freedom to bless that. And if he does, he does. And I'm convinced he will because of his word, but he doesn't have to. He's not, he's not tied to me. The purpose of Yahweh's life isn't to make me happy. He can do whatever he wants. But I have confidence that he is going to act in accordance to his promises and his faithfulness. That's basically like praying at the end of your prayer, right? Your will be done. I, I don't totally know how many of these prayers you're going to answer and the way I think you're going to answer them, but I'm totally open to your will being done. And, and, and what, what is just the, the heart that flows through all of Caleb as he says this? It's basically like this. Hey, it's been grace that's brought me safe this far, and, and grace will bring me home. It's that same humble heart that believes the gospel and lives it out every single day. Do you notice the humility of Caleb? It's so central to him. It, it, it is the, the reason he has energy. It is the reason he has fullness. It's because he is first empty. He is first empty of himself and his purposes, and he is full on God and his purposes and his promises and his word. Now, I would say the same goes for you. And whatever spiritual conflict you are in with whatever sin you are in, True humility is vitally essential and necessary if you want to win. As a matter of fact, it is, it is your true advantage as a believer in fighting against sin to possess true humility. Let me just, let me give you three advantages to humility in your life. Three advantages. Number one, it is an advantage to be small. It's an advantage to be small. When you're humble, you are small. You're, you're not someone that sticks out, but you are small in your own eyes. And that's an advantage because no one can hurt you when you're as flat as a paper, when they run over you. They just run over you, but it doesn't matter. I heard Pastor Steve say that this week. I thought it was good. Big people, on the other hand, big people, people with a big head, with big egos, they fall into all sorts of spiritual traps. All sorts of spiritual traps. There are spiritual traps set for people with pride, set for people with discontentment, set for people with shame. You're feeling convicted of a sin, perhaps, and you're saying, yeah, that's probably a sin that I actually struggle with. But then you quickly say to yourself, but I can't, I can't actually acknowledge that. Because if I acknowledge that sin, if I actually state it to be a sin in my heart, that will produce shame. Whether that's just in my heart or if, if that acknowledgement re- requires me to confess it to someone else, that will cause shame in my life and I can't have that. That would destroy everything that I have worked for. Being small has an advantage because you don't care about you and about your status and about what other people think of you. All you care about is fighting sin. Small people are the only kind of people that can mortify sin, that can kill sin, that can put it to death. 
because they don't care about anything more than Christ. And they don't care about anything more than they're being conformed into the image of Christ. I don't care what people say about me. I actually want to hear if I have some weaknesses in my life because I want less of sin in my life and more of Christ in my life. I want to depend more on Christ and I want it to be less about me because I want it to be all about him. Small people have a great advantage. How about this? It's not only an advantage to be small, it's also an advantage, I would say, to have nothing. It's an advantage to have nothing. Remember, last week we were talking about, you know, spiritual armor, Ephesians 6. Put on this, put on that. I got news for you. You can't put on anything if you already have something on. If you already have your own clothing of righteousness on. You can't put on the Lord's armor. You can't put on the Lord's armor when you're still insisting on the Lordship of your life. You can't have any of those protections. You can't have Christ's righteousness when you're trusting in your own, and you can't have Christ's shield of defense when you are the Lord of your life. You can't have those provisions. Mark it. The Lord's armor means the Lord's ownership in your life. That's what you're saying when you're putting on the Lord's armor. I am owned by him. I possess his righteousness. And I also am owned by him. He is my Lord and I follow him. That's what it means to put on the armor of God. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my righteousness, but yours alone. That's, that's, that's the spiritual armor. Embracing the gospel. Believing in the righteousness of Christ for you and only for you on your behalf. And also in all, in all seriousness, following after Christ as the only Lord of your life. That is the armor of the Lord. But you can't have that if you already have something. And that's why humility is such an advantage. It's an advantage to have nothing, because then you can have everything that Christ gives you. But first you must come to him humbly with nothing. It's an advantage to be small. It's an advantage to have nothing. But how about this? It's an advantage to matter less than God's glory. It's an advantage to matter less than God's glory. Here's a secret to killing sin. Remember why you're doing it. Are you doing it for you and for your glory, or is it all about God's glory in your life? A slave of Christ. Well, what is a slave of Christ? A slave of Christ is someone who is fully possessed by Christ, follows Christ, is owned by Christ, obeys Christ, for sure. But this is what a slave of Christ says. It's his battle. It's his purposes. It's his plans. I'll fight as long as he lets me live to do so. Because he is Lord, and it's not about me, it's about his glory. When you have a slave's mentality, you have an advantage of mattering less. 
than God's glory. And that is an advantage because for, the, for those people who, who don't matter as much, their comforts, their pride, their shame, when those things don't matter as much as Christ's glory, they can war for a very long time against their sin. They can wait for a very long time for God to fulfill his promises. Because once again, it's not about them, it's about God's glory because they matter less than his glory. When you matter more than God's glory, you will give up and you will give in every time. It's an advantage. True humility is an advantage, and we see this in Caleb. But this leads us to our our next and final uh, big point that we need to learn from Caleb. Not only should we learn his eagerness, not only should we learn his fullness, not only should we learn from his humility, but let me suggest to you tonight that you should also learn from Caleb's trouble. You should learn a massively important lesson from the troubles and difficulties that Caleb faced. Now, perhaps you're a little confused. This doesn't sound good at all. I thought when you were a Christian, I thought were you, when you were in the Lord's army, that everything was hunky-dory. That might be a Minnesota phrase. Everything was happy. There may be a misconception about how sanctification works in your life, because there may be also a misconception about how how warfare looks in Joshua. We may be mistaken in thinking that being in the Lord's army makes every battle quick and easy. It kind of feels that way from, you know, when you're, when you're just passing, you know, five, six pages and you like conquer all sorts of enemies, it sure feels quick and easy. But I would like you to make two significant observations about Caleb. And, and both of these, both of these show how difficult it was, how much trouble he had to face in order to fight the Lord's battles. Uh, number one, did you happen to notice Caleb's age? Oh, sure, he said it a few times, but did you like, did you do the math on that? I mean, kind of tells you something interesting. I'll, I'll tell you. If, if Caleb was uh, 40 years old when he was a spy, and according to Deuteronomy 2, 4, uh, 14, Israel then wandered after Kadesh Barnea for 38 years, and now Caleb is 85 years old, how long was Israel um, waging a war in the conquest of Canaan up to this point? Six? Seven. Seven. I, you did the math. Seven. We'll go with that. Seven years. The conquest up to this point has taken seven years of fighting. That's a long time. That's a long time when you can walk everywhere pretty fast. For sure. This, this battle was hard. Matter of fact, Joshua eleven eighteen. Remember that? It said the war for Canaan took a long time. God's battles... Now listen to this. God's battles, even when they're God's will, and even when they have God's resources, are not always easy and not always fast. Sometimes it seems as though God prefers long battles because long difficulties, long conflicts, make better people. And maybe that's true with you. Maybe God won't give you easy victory over some things in your life. Maybe it will be a long process, but that's because God has a wise plan for you to grow you to be a better person. So just notice his age. 
Seven years of conflict up to this point. But then also, totally dig this, check out the actual description of the battle for the hill of Hebron. And I haven't read this to you yet, because I wanted it to be a surprise. Now you guys are like, David's surprises are the worst. But I think it's sweet. So um, jump over to Joshua 15, 13. This is the description of Caleb going up the hill to take out the Anakim. Verse 13. And now, he gave to Caleb, this is Joshua, gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of Yahweh to Joshua, namely, Kirith Arbra. Remember last week we were talking about how maybe maybe, uh, Caleb wasn't totally an Israelite. Maybe we're getting a hint of that. Because he's just, where should we put Caleb? Well, he, he wants he wants Hebron. That's part of Judah, but uh, but we'll give it to him. We'll, he'll just get a portion. And never mind. And so anyway, uh, so there you go. Just just a thought. Uh, he gave him a portion, uh, namely Kirith Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Verse fourteen. And Caleb dispossessed from there the three sons of Anak: Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak, giants. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Deber. Now, the name of Deber formerly was Kirith Sefer. And Caleb said, the, the one who strikes down Kirith Sefer and captures it, I will give him um, Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. And sure enough, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, he's one of the, the judges in, in the book of Judges, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So he gave him, Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. Now, now notice this. Notice this when you're describing the battle here. This is a battle that apparently tests the will of everybody that's fighting it. Why? Because look at what Caleb has to do. And by the way, this is where it gets romantic, ladies. He must give a lucrative trophy, right, to whoever shows boldness and shows courage. I mean, Caleb doesn't have a lot of these lying around. He can't be giving out daughters all the time. What does that tell you? This was a hard battle. It was a difficult battle. It maybe caused them lots of trouble. But Caleb still did it. And here's the whole argument. You can endure a long difficulty, a long war, a long trouble for the name of Jesus. But you can only do so if you are first humbled. If you are first humble and empty, and ready to receive all of the resources that God gives to his people who are humble. Because only then, when you're humble before God, will he fill you with his resources, and when you are filled with the assurances and the convictions of God's promises, you are also filled with eagerness and boldness and confidence for him. Is that neat? You can endure difficulty, but only when you are first humble. Because when you are humble, then you are strong. 
And when you are strong in Christ Jesus, then you are bold. Let me ask you one more time. Are you in a battle? Now, we're all in a battle. Some of you are fighting against a dreaded God to hold on to your cherished sins, and some of you are fighting against your hated sins with the resources of your cherished God. But are you in a battle? Are you in a battle against your sin? Remember that sponge illustration? When is a sponge unable to absorb anything? When it's already full of something else. You have no resources when you're already full of something else. You could say it another way, right? You will not have God on your side when you are cherishing iniquity. That is true of the unbeliever, but that is also true of the believer as well. When you are holding fast to sin and refuse to give it up, you forfeit the boldness and eagerness that our God gives to his people who humbly come to him. You can't fight against your sin when your heart is full of it and you're hanging on to it. But, but notice this. But even now, even tonight, you can find full salvation in Christ Jesus with all of your sins. Not, not by hiding it, not by trying to cover it up, not by trying to make it look cute or pretty, but you can find full salvation. How? By bringing all of those sins to Christ Jesus at the cross and saying, perhaps, perhaps there is place for this cross with my sin as well. Perhaps Christ will purchase me with his blood as well at the cross. But you can only do it if you come humbly. You can only do it if you come humbly. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this word from you, this encouragement from you, this challenge from you, and I pray that it would dig deep into our hearts, convict us of our weaknesses, and strengthen us in that way. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.